NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Like this podcast? Why not try Double Century, my podcast on the history of cricket? Want to know why England's first test keeper was in jail? Or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads? Find Double Century in all of your greatest podcast apps. This week on Redinger, we talk about the disgraced Indian swing bowler, Sri Sam. Which is weird, because I wrote a piece on him, so I brought in a friend to interview me. I'm Subhash Jairaman, the king of cricket podcasts. Shri Santh was a figure of fun during his career, either being slapped by Harbhajan Singh or being caught in a match-fixing sting. So I caught up with him when he was in the middle of his battles with the BCCI. He was a fascinating and thoroughly weird man. Subhash, I have brought you on. Not because you have anything interesting to say yourself, because obviously you don't, but I brought you on because you are the expert in interviewing other people on cricket podcasts. And I want to talk about my piece about Sri Santh. And I thought if I just spoke for half an hour on my own, it would be very dull. So I brought you on so that you can ask me questions about my piece. You're the Heather Locklear of Red Inca. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jared. But now let's uh, turn around the roles. Weren't we in India in 2017 during the India-Australia series when uh, you went about looking up Srishant about his fixing fallout? Oh, I can't even remember how long ago it was. But you were there. I must have seen you just after I got from Kerala because you, you were at the Bangalore test. And I reckon I got a train from Kochi to Bangalore because I had that moment where I, I put in Uber, the right train station. He took me to the wrong train station. And then I had to do uh, the Darjeeling Limited thing where you run along the platform and jump on the back of the Indian train. I literally had to do that in Kochi. So I must have gone straight from Sri Sant to you, which is a perfect match, really. If anybody can go from uh, Sri Sant to Supaj, they'll be happy. <laughs> you should be too. How did that come about? How did uh, you choose Sri Sant as your subject? And uh, what was the logistics involved? Because it's so hard to track down Indian players, former, current, banned, uh, unbanned, whatever. Someone must have retweeted him into my timeline. And I clicked on it because he's a 
former match fixer who was tweeting about stuff. And his banner page was him on stage with Narendra Modi. And I was like, you what now? And I got really interested in it. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but I remember chatting to a bunch of Crick Info people. And I'm, it might have been Arun, who's no longer with Crick Info, but I think it might have been him. But I, I can't remember because I talked to a bunch of people because it's one of those things, you know what I'm like with these sorts of things. Like I find out a little bit of information and then I go to all these people who might know more and just go, can you explain this to me? Because this doesn't make any sense because he's a match fixer and he's on stage with the big guy, the big mm. boss. And I thought that was really weird. So yeah, I talked to a bunch of people and then, yeah, I think it was Arun who gave me the number, but having a number of an Indian cricketer and them responding, mm -hmm. how many times do you and I send messages to famous cricketers? Nothing ever happens, right? <laughs> I am still on red with Misbah Al-Haq from a WhatsApp <laughs> for five years ago. He's seen it and he knows who I am <laughs> and, the, and the bastard won't get back to me. I love you, Misbah, if you're listening. But that happens a lot. So I remember I sent a bunch of messages to Sri Sam. He just doesn't get back to me. I think I might have contacted him on Twitter as well. Doesn't get back to me. And then one day I just got bored and I started Googling all information about him again to see if there was like an article that kind of explained what was going on in his life. And there wasn't. And then I just sent another WhatsApp and I'm like, look, this is what I do. This is the sort of stuff I do. I am very interested in chatting to you. Can we catch up if I come to India? And he said yes. And he started chatting to me a little bit. Sri Sant sort of chats to you and WhatsApp in a really weird way. In fact, it's very much how a lot of Indian cricketers and Pakistani cricketers do it in that they don't get back to you three or four times. And then suddenly you can't stop them WhatsApping you for a day and a half. And it's like, they send you like nine messages in a row and you haven't even had time to respond to the first one. And they're now talk, you know, talking about climate change or something on the eighth one. <laughs> and so I figured, oh, look, this guy's a little bit interested. Maybe I turn up in Kochi and he doesn't want to talk to me, but mm. maybe I can convince him. So I went to Crick Info and I think, so what was it? It was a four test series, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, it was. So we had, I had like a three day break, right? And I was like, I can get from Pune to Kochi and then I can get from Kochi to Bangalore sort of all in one little thing. And I had maybe yeah. four days. So I called him up and I said, look, I'm going to be here on these dates. And he said, that's fine. I'll keep that day open. I did think at the time, like, what else are you going to do? Unless you're shooting a movie. Yeah, he was into movies at the time, right? So when you walked into the house, could you recognize him? You know, because we always had seen Sri Santa as this light, wiry fast bowler. He does have that incredible sort of interesting shaped face. It doesn't look like a normal human face. And so I thought, okay, chances are he's going to be really busy, but maybe I kind of worked out that he wasn't famous enough that I couldn't just turn up at things, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So let's say he had a movie shoot. I kind of figured if I turned up there, it's not like Bollywood where I might have a little bit of trouble getting on the set. I kind of figured that I could go through as a journalist and just keep showing my Disney ID, which you can barely see my face on anyway. But it turned out he was fine. I met him at the gym and he is, you're right. I mean, he's a completely different human specimen than he was. From the chin down, he's a different yeah. person. From the chin up, he's the same. And he did look like he had swallowed the former Shri Sants, maybe a couple of Shri Sants. <laughs> and he had swelled in every way. You know, he had those sort of steroidy neck muscles. Yeah. And he, he looked like a bodybuilder more than a cricketer. And it was funny because his first thing was, I'm doing all this for cricket. And I'm just, just like, mate, no bowler in the world has that physique. I do this <laughs> for a living. Come on now. And he just sort of smiled. So he was different, but he was fine. He didn't have that much to do. And he said, look, I blocked off a couple of days. I think at that stage, he thought a big piece on Crick Info was very beneficial. It's funny, The Last Dance is out. You sort of see these sorts of things that, you know, and Lance Armstrong's got his new documentary. Mm -hmm. 
you have to be aware if you're writing those big pieces that I do at a certain point that they're using you as much as you're using them. Mm -hmm. And I think as long as that's all sort of quite open between the two of you, it's better. It's probably worse if like you publish it and then everyone points out on Twitter that <laughs> they're I mean, doing the, that. The, the story when it came out, Street Sound, the story of a fall, people can go find it on uh, Crick Info, Cricket Monthly, right? It was a Cricket Monthly piece. Came out in 2019 after his life ban was reduced to seven years. And you did this interview in 2017. What was the initial understanding of when you thought this piece would come out? Because Srisanth, as you said, was obviously keen on doing it because any publicity is good publicity at that point mm -hmm. for him. So how did those things shake up? Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. Like, as I said, I had the two breaks and I, I've got the two pieces. The other one I had still haven't finished only because it's just a tougher piece. It might take me three or four years to finish it from here. But I said to Sam, but I'm going to India. I got a free ticket from India to Hong Kong and I did the, the Hong Kong Netherlands. So I sat on the bench for them and I did the MLI story. And then, so I basically had already got two big features for them. And then I said, look, I'm going to be in India. There's no point me going and doing press conferences and everything. Why don't I just come up with two other ideas? And I came up with one, which they really like, which they probably still want me to write. And the other one is the Sri Santh one. And to be fair, I don't think Sambit was ever completely on board with the Sri Santh one. He was a little bit apprehensive. It was an Indian match fixer. They'd had their Chris Cairns issues by that point. Mm. They had, for the first time in a while, a very working relationship with the BCCI. Um, and I was about to come in and write a piece. At that stage, we didn't even know, but it was always going to be tricky. Then it came out, but we were also in a weird situation that, well, he's just been found not guilty by this court, so let's do the piece. And they'd be like, but there's an appeal going. And it was like that for two years, really. Like, mm. And I probably disagree with Crick Info on this. But they really wanted the BCCI to have a say on this piece. Mm. And I had contacted the BCCI officially, and they had said, there's no way we're talking to you about Three Sand. Um, I then talked to the their ACU officer, to be fair, who mm -hmm. did talk to me a little bit, yes. although he only talked to me once and then disappeared forever. The former policeman who happened to be also the man who had arrested Three Sand, which I found quite funny. Conflict of interest, what's that? I know, weird one, hey. I mean, I think he got his job with the BCCI partly because he arrested Treesand. And I don't mean that <laughs> even in a corrupt way. I mean, I think no, no, I mean no. that in a very literal way. As mm -hmm. in, they were like, well, mm, this guy. Um, but although there could have been, who knows what goes on behind the scenes with those sorts of things. But, and then it became this whole thing of they were trying to make sure that the BCCI weren't unhappy. And I was trying to make sure it was as accurate as possible. And my big thing was, they kept saying, you know, the BCCI has to have more of a say in this. And I said, well, they've been asked officially. I've talked to the ACU guy and I've got the letter they sent Shreesan. When the final court stuff happened, that's when Nagaraj really came up. So Nagaraj has got a co-byline. I mean, Nagaraj probably wrote less than 3% of that piece. Mm -hmm. It's certainly less than 7%. But a lot of the factual stuff about the latest stuff in the courts, mm -hmm. he certainly had a huge say in. Even mm -hmm. if he didn't write it, you know, we, we were... Involved, So it's very much a written by piece by me, but he certainly had a lot of factual parts to it. But by the end, I'd get completely on top of one court ruling. And then a couple of months later, there'd be a new court ruling. So to have yeah. someone like Nagaraj that we could go through together. But I think looking back, I wish Crick and Fry just said, we won't publish this until we know the final judgment is passed. Had they said that, it would have been much easier for me to do. So there was a lot of rewriting on it. So that's probably why it went a couple of years, but it would have been as good a piece had it come out two years earlier, whenever sure. I wrote it. But I suppose it's going to last the test of time more now because it was after everything happened. So gotcha. from a writing point of view, it's probably, it's advantageous, but 
I hate writing things that organizations sit on. I get really frustrated with them. Mm-hmm. Once the work is done and I'm happy with it, I want it out. So there's probably a lot of angry messages between me and Crick Info people in the year and a half, two years. Which writer is ever happy that once they're done with the work, their blood, sweat and tears, they want to see it on black and white. Exactly. And longer it takes, more frustrated you are and you start wondering whether they're going to ever publish and all that. Yeah. I mean, I had to teach myself the Indian court system for that piece. Do you know what I mean? So I was like, guys, I got this. Let's go. (laughs) As you said, you know, you, you did this interview with him in 2017 in the middle of what was supposed to be his lifespan. So what sort of piece are you, were you trying to write? And what sort of piece did it end up being in 2019 when it got published? Two years is a long metamorphosis for a piece. Yeah. So obviously, as you said, you know, you've gone through a bunch of rewrites as well with the newer developments in the case. So what did you think was going to be the piece considering you be a journalist for 10 years? You've been in cricket, covering cricket for more than a decade now. So I'm sure you had some preconceived notions about certain things. So what did you think the piece was going to be about and what did the piece ended up being and uh, what was that uh, transformation? I always knew it was going to be a feature and a long feature because the more I researched on him, as you said, I've done this for so long, I can tell the difference between a 3,000 word feature on something, which is you going in depth on something that is a, maybe quite contained. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way I write a 3,000 word piece. And I can tell the difference between that and 5,000 plus. 5,000 plus really, at that stage, you're almost writing a film. Yes. So you, what you need then is a bunch of scenes and a bunch of different things. And so what did I know? I knew going in, I knew there was match fixing. I knew there was movies. I knew there was politics. And I knew there was him as the person. So that's four pretty strong themes. So you could write 3,000 words on almost any of those topics, right? Gotcha. So straight away, I knew there was a lot there. What I didn't know, though, is if I was going to do a caricature of a crying cricketer at home on his own, I didn't know how much the legal stuff I would get into at that stage. And so all I knew was I need to spend a lot of time with him and understand who he is now. And if possible, try and understand who he was before if the two people are different. And luckily for me, he was very honest with that. He's like, I was not a very good person before. I was a young, aggressive, famous person who wanted to outspend Sachin Tendulkar on a night out to prove that I was a bigger dog than him and Mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. I found him at a very interesting time Even the women he dated, I would assume he dated a lot of models and flashy women before and, you know, probably daughters of billionaires, those sorts of women. And his current wife was very much a normal human woman. (laughs) She's not a flashy person. I noticed her trying to like hide the flashier parts of the house, which he obviously is all Shreesand when I was there. So all those sorts of things came about. So once I was there, I knew what it was. But beforehand, yeah, I didn't really know what it was going to be. I also didn't know how honest he would be with me. Maybe the first hour I was there, it was a very, very dry interview. And I was thinking, I'm going to have to spend my full two days with this guy because he's not going to open up here. He's going to have to get to know me. We're going to have to, I don't know if he drinks actually, but we're going to have to get drunk together or whatever because I couldn't work out how to break him. And you get that sometimes. He's he's a trained athlete. He's Mm -hmm. used to having bad press written about him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was just that little bit standoffish. And then... He starts bringing up, he basically is trying to explain cricket corruption to me by using the reference to death of a gentleman. Yeah. And I'm like, my man, I know I've lost a lot of weight and I'm looking quite sexy, but (laughs) I was actually in that film. I'm the guy, like it's Sam, the guy with the voice and I'm the guy with the shirts. Yeah. 
And then he just completely changed. And then I can't remember how long we spent together that day. And we spent a lot of time chatting on the phone after that as well. But after that, he was a completely different person. At that stage, I realized I was really doing something on Sri Santh, the human being, Hmm. rather than Sri Santh, the caricature or the defense victim. Hmm. And that's when the piece changed for me. But I didn't know going in what I was going to get. He could have been an absolute prick. Mm -hmm. I think empathy and understanding is all part of writing a big piece like that. It doesn't matter if you're writing about a a killer or not. In Sri Santh's case, there wasn't very many victims, unless you count all of cricket. But there's not a victim to his crime. So it's a bit different than doing a true crime murder mystery, where I think you have to be very sure to give that to his victim. Whereas in this case, the victim is almost him Mm -hmm. because he has committed this crime and ruined his own life. But yeah, so I suppose I knew that there was a lot of facets there. I didn't know that he would be so interesting. You're sure that he committed the crime? I'm pretty sure that he has fixed matches of cricket before, yes. Am I sure that he fixed this particular match that he was caught on? No. The way he talked to me and looking into everything that I did, I would be shocked if Sri Santh had never fixed a moment on cricket field. And I felt he came as close to telling me that as he could. And that's the way I wrote up the piece, which is you know, another reason that I thought I was very fair to him, but I was also, so I, I, I don't know if you ever saw Making a Murder or the Netflix special. I saw a few episodes of it when it Yeah, so that out. must have come out around the time that I was thinking about writing this piece. And I remember just thinking, I'm pretty sure that guy committed the murder as well. And if not, had probably committed many other crimes, but I'm not sure there was enough evidence for this particular crime. And that's where I sort of looked at this piece. So I do feel like he has been involved in fixing at one level or another. But also, I think he was desperate to get back into the Indian team because you and I both know that the money there is on a completely (laughs) different level. And I think he was desperate to get back into the Indian team. Plus, if you listen to the tapes, the actual recordings, literally his man, who is the one who's involved in in the fixing, says he doesn't want to fix this over. Plus, then you've got the, the evidence of the over. If he was trying to fix that over, he yeah. either forgot Herschel Gibbs style or he's the worst fixer of all time. And I know he's not the worst fixer of all time because I've seen his wide record. He bowls more wides than Sean Tate, right? Mm-hmm. And Sean Tate is the least accurate bowler I've ever seen in cricket. So if you're bowling more wides than Sean Tate, I know that something dodgy is going on. So I'm sorry. I do believe that he did it, but I don't believe that the evidence just doesn't stack up for this one. 2010, you had the... Uh... Pakistani trio, the fixing, which you bring up in the piece too a little bit. Considering you've been in cricket and seen all these things, sometimes close, sometimes far, whatever, and having interacted with them quite a bit, where does he fall in the uh, spectrum of Salman but to Mohammad Amir with Asif somewhere in between? I think Asif, being that he also did steroids and he's a <laughs> canny guy, I'm pretty sure Asif is more on the Salman but side of things. Okay. I think he was a very susceptible character. If you're going out and you were spending tens of thousands of dollars in nightclubs in London and Dubai. Just to show that you're a big dog. You are suddenly in a position where you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable to prostitution stings. You're vulnerable to people paying your bar tab. Level after level after level. And I think that he was... The sort of person he is in that situation, I could see how he would be. Like if I was looking to to go after someone, he's the kind of athlete I would go after because I think that that was all there. I don't think there was any evidence that he ever brought anyone else in. So again, that's the Selman Butt thing, isn't it? Selman Butt did that. Danish Canera did that. So he's certainly not on that kind of level. 
I think he's somewhere in the middle because he's also, I wouldn't say he's an incredibly intelligent person, but he's certainly not an idiot. Mm. You know, he has the ability. He's very self-reflective now. Now, he may not have been when he got done, but he wasn't 20, was he, when he was done? He was, what, 29, 30-ish? Yes. So you can't say he, he was naive. He'd been on the international circuit for a long time. So again, he's different than Amir, I think. But he's certainly towards that sort of end. But I think for me, and this isn't just a Shreesan thing, the players that fix while being criminals and while being against any sort of moral thing that you and I might have are also massive victims in what is an organized crime ring. Mm. I think the more that I've got to know people over the years in cricket, I realize how poorly they are paid, what happens at the end of their career, that sort of desperation. Mm. Like I understand the rebel cricketers, maybe the English cricketers less, but I certainly understand the Australian, Sri Lankan and West Indian rebel cricketers because I know how much they were getting paid. That doesn't mean I think it's a good idea because I understand my mate who robbed a 7-Eleven and ended up in jail. I understand why he did it as well, but doesn't mean I, I go, that, well, that's a logical conclusion. I, I would have done the same thing. You don't condone the act, but you no. understand the motivation behind the act. And I think that doing Death of a Gentleman, especially, I understood that the players are very much victims in this environment. And then the first draft of Shreesamp was probably already written before I worked with St. Lucia. But being around St. Lucia and seeing the traps that players mm. have and how it all works. And the ACU guys sit in the hotel lobby all day and there's not much they can do other than try and shoot people away if they don't have a hotel room in that place and all those sorts of things. And when you do some kits, I forget, uh, I might be the Marriott. I can't remember the hotel chain, Hilton, Marriott, whatever it is, that all the teams stay in, in St. Kitts. Has a casino there. Mm -hmm. And players like to gamble. And especially sure. young Asian players who are not used to that. It's, it's all right, you know, well and good for someone like me who grew up with gambling in every part of his life and is okay with it. Let's say you're a young Asian player and you're smoking and drinking and gambling and someone just casually walks past, takes the photo. You and I both know the kind of emotional blackmail that that can have with your family. True, true. Shri Sant never talked about that sort of stuff with me. There could be photos of anything. Like One thing I've heard with players is like sometimes what they do is they offer you drugs and women. Mm -hmm. Then when you get completely high, then a man comes in naked as well. They try and do everything they can to kind of capture you. Gotcha. And so I do understand all of that. That doesn't mean that I forgive him because he had everything ahead of him. Yes. And he was a dick. But he doesn't really forgive the early Shri Sant either. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Even he sort of says, yeah, I was an idiot and I, I threw it all away. Um, so I have a very different view than I probably would have 10 years ago of those sorts of players. I was talking to an Indian journal that had roots in Kerala from where uh, Shri Sant is from. You know, he kind of knew the guy too, knew his background and all that. And uh, at the height of this thing going on, I had asked him, like, you think he did it? He's like, yeah. I do. And one angle that you said was about his parents kind of pushing him to live large and larger than that he was and make more and more and more. Pushed him into that sort of thing where he's like, well, you know, easy bucks. Did you approach that angle at all? Uh, did you get any inkling on that aspect of things at all from doing the story? I decided to stay with him because he was so honest. I think if I was Wright Thompson type thing, I probably would have gone back and done childhood friends and would have interviewed his wife on her own and everything. But because of the amount of time I had for a piece like that, and he was so honest, I just felt that I didn't need to. Like he, he, he was quite clear. I felt, I think he came from a very 
they weren't a very wealthy family. They were soldiers, very working class family. And I felt it was less to do with his family and more to do with him trying to prove that he simultaneously wanted to prove that he was a tough man and a big man. Mm. Gotcha. So he wanted to prove to his family that he was tough and strong. So that's why the slapping thing really affected him. Right. Right. It really did affect him. And that's why he's gone on to be this big weightlifter, I think, because he's trying to show now he's tougher than a soldier, even though we both know if he fought a soldier, he'd probably get the shit beaten out of him. But (laughs) I think there's that. And then the other side of it, I think he wanted to prove to his family that he was a big man now and that he was bigger than them. We talked about it a little bit. I found it quite interesting that he trained himself like a soldier. So I went with that aspect more. Perhaps if I talked to his family, it would have been different. But yeah, I could certainly see that. And again, I think when you're writing a big piece like this, you're looking at a lot of parallels with yourself. You're trying to find that that thing that you understand. Mm. And I kind of understand what it's like to come from the working class background and dream a lot bigger than that mm-hmm. and have your family. They want you to be bigger, but they also don't understand it and can't support it. A really interesting one I talked to years ago, the leg spinner Craig Howard, who was supposed to be mm. the, um, Shane Warne said he was more talented than him, yes. but Craig never made it. His body fell apart and his brain fell apart. And he said that he felt he was being picked on by Dean Jones and Les Stillman, the coach and the captain. And his old man was a brickie. I see. And he's like, how do I go back and talk to my old man who's a brickie about cricket politics and about all this sort of stuff? My old man's a simple guy who's worked on his own his whole life and he puts bricks down in people's front yards, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I go through really complicated stuff in my work, my old man's not an idiot. You've met him. He's a smart guy. But it's very hard for me to explain the world that I'm in to him. And I felt that Treesamp had a very similar thing with his family, but there's probably another piece there on that sort of thing. But let's be honest, there is maybe even a book on Indian players and their families, on Sri Lankan players and their families, mm-hmm. on Pakistani players. I mean, Kumar's dad is, is probably <laughs> a book on his own. And you and I both know this. Like, I think I always knew about it because I always grew up with aunties and uncles who mm-hmm. were Sri Lankan. I remember... When I played cricket, I was a better cricketer than my mate who was, and his parents were Sri Lankan, right? And when we played indoor cricket, his dad had a team. And I was so good that his dad got me into his team, but left his son out. (laughs) And literally turned to his son and said, if you tried as hard as Jared, you'd be in the team, right? I'm used to Asian parents, (laughs) but it's almost a topic on its own. And so I had heard that from someone, I think maybe someone I talked to who sort of knew the family Mm. a little bit. And I just thought that in this particular case, I'm not sure that I needed to do it. But you're right. It's an incredible, I would love for you to interview the parents of famous cricketers. <laughs> I want to know a lot about Ravi Ashwood's parents. I'm oh. not even going to lie to you there. And there's some real weird ones out there as well. I'm sure. Like really full on parents. But it, but even like Anya Shropsol's father is on Twitter and is always talking about it. There's some really interesting ones out there. But yeah, in this particular piece, I left it alone the same way that I left his childhood stuff, just because I felt he was so honest to begin with. Gotcha. I want to talk about a couple of different passages from the story itself. I don't want to ruin anything else for the uh, readers. One is the situation that you called Peaks Shrishan, or 30 Minutes of Shrishan, about his dog, uh, pet dog, Roxy. Roxy. Right? What did that symbolize? You can let the listeners know how things happened and what did that tell you about your subject? Yeah. So he has one or two small children. They must have been, I think he had a one-year-old, maybe a three-year-old. I heard this whining and I honestly thought one of his kids was in trouble. And I think his first thought was the same. And we both looked upstairs and then his wife came from the kitchen, 
run in. Very important that I mentioned that because she mentioned it to me that she cooked herself. <laughs> so she runs out and she says, it's Roxy. And I was sort of like, okay. And I'm not sure I knew what Roxy was at that stage, but he was up and running. So I followed him because things were happening. Sure. So I knew something was going on. So it turned out he had this big Rottweiler. That's right. And it's called Roxy because it's short for Rockstar. Of course. Which straight away, he's got a Rottweiler. It's already the most recent thing ever. Mm -hmm. And it's in this big handmade cage, beautiful cage. It's a bit Tiger King, this cage, mm. in that it passes the muster of what a cage should look like, mm. but it's clearly too small, but put together by amateurs, but amateurs that know how to put something together, but maybe not a dog cage. Anyway, he's got to have this cage because he's got kids in the house. And this is a huge, aggressive dog, which he wants it to be a huge, aggressive dog. Of course. We hear this whining. He runs out the front. And I remember thinking... Because, you know, it's a traditional Indian house. I had to take my shoes off when I went there. So I've got these tiny little ankle socks on, which already look ridiculous if you're not wearing shoes. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, should I stop and get my shoes? But he runs past. So I was like, well, I can't stop and get shoes now. I'm just going to have to go outside in socks. <laughs> you're there to report, not to look good. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we get out. And so, as I said, because it was made Tiger King style, mm -hmm. it's got these wooden planks at the bottom. And Roxy's paw has gone in between the planks. Mm -hmm. And it's like literally... If you looked from the ground, so we both laid down on the ground, you could see her paw had gone uh, all the way through. And she was stuffed. And she wasn't getting that out on her own. But she's like a fucking lion, man. She's <laughs> a big dog and aggressive. And she's now in pain. It's not like you can open up and do anything. And he had his guys. And suddenly, like, so far that day, I'd seen his driver, his assistant, and his wife. Maybe his nanny. He might have taken me upstairs and, and his nanny was up there. So for a guy who's quite wealthy, he didn't seem to have... Entourage. You and I have friends in India with 40 people. Mm -hmm. You know, he seemed to have a fairly normal amount of people. But suddenly when Roxy was there, there were just people turning up from everywhere. There seemed to be like seven guys in his garden that I didn't know, <laughs> all in like matching outfits and everything. Some guy came out of the house that I hadn't seen. I think he had construction workers. I think he might have been making an indoor cricket net on the top floor of his house. Mm. So he came down. And then you suddenly realize that sort of pecking order of, who he was compared to everyone else. Everyone else was quite clearly a servant type relationship to him. Mm -hmm. And also it was on him to fix all this, if that makes sense. Like gotcha. he was going to tell everyone what to do and whatever. And it was, so I think eventually we worked out that the best way was to actually put a piece of metal in and mm. bend back one of the things and ping it up so that Roxy's paw would come free. And so he hands me and like one of his guys, mm -hmm. <laughs> this thing, and we both do it. And we're both like, He's stronger than the both of us combined. And we, he's not even bending. Okay? <laughs> so then he does it and like he's there and he's like, Ooh, and it's a performance. And I don't know if it's a performance for me or for everyone else, because to be honest, it felt like it was for everyone. It felt like it wasn't just for me at this point. And there was a, like a small part of me that went by that went, is he done this on purpose? Like, is he showing me he's saving his dog on purpose? The only thing that made me think he wasn't is I've seen his acting mm. and he's fucking dreadful yeah, of right, course. as an actor. He's not a bad singer in a personality on the screen, but as an actual actor, when he has to deliver the line, there's no way he could act good enough to, <laughs> to convince me that he was doing this. So anyway, I'm, I'm watching all this go on and then he pops it open and he sort of starts strutting around. And the whole thing was like, he just saved his dog's life. Then you see the caring side of him you know, he goes up and he cuddles her and he was distressed from what had happened because she was screaming and whining for, I don't know, seven, it took us seven or eight minutes to pop her out. 
And it just felt really, really like Shreesat. And then from there, like I've got stuff all over my hands because I've been holding metal poles and everything. I go inside and I say, you know, where can I wash up? And I go in straight away, go into his bathroom, wash my hands, turn around to dry my hands. And there's a towel that you use in his downstairs guest bathroom. And that towel is his 2011 World Cup towel. And I was just like, this is a guy who's been caught match fixing partly because of a fucking towel. And yet he's still got his towel out. It just felt like a very Shreesanth moment. I'm sure weird things like this happen to him all the time. Mm. And maybe he even creates us an area where he has to do it. He's a very dramatic person. I mean, he's always been that, right? Yeah. At least mm. in his cricket, he's always been the dramatic person. You know, you could, he was always up in people's grills. Um, yeah. I remember him getting into Andrew Simons and Matthew Hayden and even Andre Nell, the poor, harmless Andre Nell. So, <laughs> Obviously, he got in Sachin Tendulkar's face too. At least that's what we all hear mm. anyway. The second thing I want to talk to you, and we can wrap the uh, chat on that, is how you ended the story. So there's a, an event unfolding in front of you, once again, using smaller sized animals in pain. So there is some metaphor in action here uh, with the Sri Sant cricket trajectory anyway. What if you hadn't seen that event that you saw and how you closed the piece with what if that hadn't happened? You weren't there to witness that on the streets of Kochi. Mm. How would you have ended a piece like this? What you're talking about is the rats and the dogs. Mm -hmm. At that stage, I'd spent, it must have been seven or eight at night. So I probably spent eight or nine hours with him Ooh. on and off. Not that you're always with him because it, it was actually quite a big day because he was talking to his lawyers and everything as well. It ended up being quite an interesting day that I was with him. But I come out of the stadium and I'm exhausted because he's quite a tiring person to be around. Plus, when you're that alert all day, yes, and I'm writing notes and I'm taking photos, and I needed a break from Street Sound because he'd invited me back to his house for dinner, and I was like, "No, I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> I need to go back to my hotel and just chill out." So, as I was leaving, I got an Uber, and I was waiting for the Uber to turn up, and I was sitting down, and I noticed these wild dogs going crazy in front of me, like running up and back and up and back, and they were chasing this rat. Then I get in the Uber. I'm talking to the guy. At that stage, I wanted, there's a very specific reason why none of the characters have a name, all the different people I talk to. Mm -hmm. Some of them I talk to quite a lot, but the reason is I wanted them to all be sort of representative of Kerala. Gotcha. So it's like taxi driver number one, tuk-tuk driver, Uber driver, hotel concierge, man in bar. And that was on purpose. They were all so similar. <laughs> they all kind of thought he was this hero and he'd been wronged. Anyway, so he actually says the line, and it was said to me twice while I was there. Nothing is ever finished in India, mm. right? So that would have been a perfect way to finish the piece, I think, regardless. What I did was sort of juxtapose the two images of the rats and the dogs because gotcha. I think it goes back to what we were talking about before of Srinivasan had been caught being involved with fixing at this point. Sure. The bookmakers and the fixers and the gangsters are all far bigger fishes in this than Sri Santh ever could be. Yes, the media and the industry around it, everything is bigger than Sri Sant. The individual in this case, even if he's a famous, rich cricketer, is mm -hmm. actually quite a small part of it. Yeah. And all he's trying to do one way or another, even if he's wrong, you're trying to survive and get by. Sure. And it feels like that's what we're trying to do in life. And the dog and the rat thing is the same thing. I don't really blame the dogs and the rats in the same way. I don't really blame the rat for coming into my house and trying to get food. I was trying to show that sort of the machinery of what, he had lived with. If it hadn't have happened, I think what the taxi driver said to me, because I also got the Sri Sant stuff really late. So that was two years probably after the last time I chatted to him. I texted him 
to say, I'm finally getting this piece done. This has now happened. You and I now both know exactly what your future is going to be as far as the fixing goes. Can you give me a quote? He then fires off a million rapid fire things. So if you have a look, the actual end is three different things. Yes. It's him talking, it's the Uber driver talking, and it's the rats and the dogs. Yes. I think it's a better piece because of the rats and the dogs. Mm-hmm. Because it's a very visual thing and everyone kind of gets what I'm saying. It also ties everything together. But if I just had the driver and him, I still think it all would come together. But it's exactly the same as I just interviewed Wright Thompson about his piece about Sanchin. And it's like, as a writer, when he gets to the point where he finds out that his driver in Delhi's son is named Sanchin mm. because of Sanchin Dendulkar, how can you not follow that? So... I was in constant chatting with a guy called Eddie Gibbs, mm. who was the Scottish guy trying to help Sri Sam get to play cricket in Scotland. Yep. And I sent him the piece early on because I knew that I was essentially calling Sri Sam a fixer in that piece. But I also wanted to be as strong as I could be. But I also wanted him. He's the expert in Sri Sam. He, he knows him. There were some people I talked to about Sri Sam who were quite biased. I felt that Eddie was a bit more honest in the way that he went about it. And I said to Eddie, the only thing I'm worried about is I'm essentially, am I calling Sri Sam the rat? I almost wish it was a squirrel, <laughs> that particular animal. Some rodent, it's rodent of some kind. Any other rodent that people don't hate as much. <laughs> and he basically said, look, aren't we all just rats? And aren't there always just big feral dogs out there? And we're all just going to get by. And I thought, well, if it works with someone who's friends with Shreesan, mm. it works. If it hadn't have happened, the piece would have still ended really strongly. It just wouldn't have been as visual. And the reason I love that particular story, and I was captivated by it. I was there for like 15 minutes. It was like watching a nature documentary right in front of you. Yeah. It was so captivating. As Indian life sort of unfurled in front of it, I had cheetahs taking on antelope. It was a really dramatic thing. But for me, his life was like a movie. And this was like a mini movie that told you the story in front of it. So I think it all just came together very perfectly and very luckily for me. If you're writing these big pieces, you almost have to be available to see those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You have to be like Wright Thompson and asking your driver about his son. You have to be like me and looking at everything. And I wanted all of Kerala to be part of that story because he's a very Kerala person. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't looking for rats and dogs. I was literally looking at the world outside that Olympic stadium or the athletic stadium because... I wanted to see everything. And in that moment, once you open yourself up, you do start to see it. And you are always looking for that thing that explains what you're writing. And in this case, it sort of happened for me. Sometimes you have to manufacture it a bit more, but it all worked out quite perfectly, I think, in the end. I mean, when you're writing a grand piece like this, and as you said, you're very alert on a day when you're talking to a main subject. So you're always taking in all the scenes in and then kind of whatever way you, the story goes, the scenes sort of fit in in the end. And the cool thing about this ending was that depending on where you opinions lie uh, based on the facts here of whether he did it, didn't do it, he was a victim, no, he wasn't, whatever. You could pick the sides of perhaps Srisanth was the dog or perhaps he was a rat or perhaps he was the rat that escaped. Maybe he was the rat that was dead. I don't know. You had yeah. many options to go with, and it kind of covers the whole gamut of loyalties. Yeah. Considering the piece had, you know, you end the piece with this scene and as well as with Srisanth's text, I think it's fair to finish this interview with on Srisanth himself. The Srisanth, the cricketer, I mean, that underpins everything here. In a way, he got kicked out of IPL, but IPL kind of started with Srisanth. In the air, Srisanth takes it, says Ravi Shastri, and that's how basically... IPL is kicked off. I remember 2006-7 series against South Africa. That's the first time I'm really seeing Srisanth bowl 
and it was Joburg. He won the man of the match. He was just unstoppable. He had the bold upright seam long before Mohammed Shami. So let's end on a note of Street Sound the Cricketer. Like, what do you recall? Yeah, he's probably one of the last genuine outswing bowlers, wasn't he? In that he didn't have much else other than, as you said, the, the bolt up seam and swinging the ball away. There's two different kind of outswing bowlers. There's the sort of Hoggard outswing bowler, Terry Alderman outswing bowler, mm. where they're completely in control of, uh, Hilfenhaus was another one. They're completely in control of the ball at all times. And then there's the kind of dramatic outswing bowler where you're not quite sure if they're completely in control of it, but they seem to get very late swing and very dramatic swing quite a lot. He had that. That flair is quite an exciting. You know, there's nothing exciting about watching Ben Hilfenhaus. There was when he was, maybe when he was young and he's bowling outswing at 90 miles an hour. But certainly by the time he played test cricket, he's bowling 85 mile an hour. He had that sort of contained action. Yeah. You pair him to Sri Sam. It always felt like things could go wrong with Sri Sam. Something could fall apart. And he was quite a dramatic bowler. And that ball seemed to swing so far at times, you know, just crazy distance. And he had that energy as well where, you weren't quite sure what was going to happen when the ball left his hand a little bit. It might bounce more than it should. I always liked him as a bowler. I really did. I really did enjoy watching him bowl. And I think it would be interesting. He might have been at his best in his 30s, a bit like Jimmy Anderson has mm -hmm. gone on to be. Yes. Because I think Jimmy Anderson was a bit more skillful and could swing it both ways. And I'm not sure Sri Santh ever would have been able to do that. But I could actually see a period where from 30 to 34, when he would have matured anyway. Let's be honest. Even if he wasn't thrown out of cricket, I think he would have matured a little bit. And at that point, I think he would have been a really, really interesting bowler to watch. In fact, if anything, he probably would have become like an Andre Nell type bowler. Because mm. we never saw Andre Nell, the young bowler. We yes. sort of, well, we didn't see as much of him as a younger bowler. We saw him when he was around 28 to 32. And I think that's when Treesanth would have been at his absolute best. So it's interesting. I just read this long piece on ESPN about this boxer. Never a big boxer. He trained like local fighters and, you know, small time Olympian fighters. But then ESPN do this huge story on him because of his wife and uh, there's a, a true crime element to it and everything. It's funny how quickly the cricket side of Shreesamp didn't matter to me mm. because everything else did. The fame side did, the movie side did, the fixing did because he was so interesting in every other way that you could write a really interesting piece on what Shreesamp could have become as a bowler, I think a speculation piece based on everything about him because he was a good enough cricketer that, and we have enough footage uh, to go back and to look yes. at. But this piece is so much about who Sri Santh is now and what he did that I probably didn't fit that in. But he was a really good bowler and I tried to prove that. I think if you go back and you look at his numbers, he's got what I would call Ishant Sharma numbers. Yes. I suppose now we'd have to say early Ishant Sha Sharma yes, numbers. Of course. Saranga Lakmal numbers. Asian Seema numbers. And I wanted to say, this guy could play. We all knew he could play. Of course. We didn't know how long he'd stick around and what would go wrong with him. But he was a genuine player who happened to then be involved in this incredible moment. All right. On that note, Jared, thanks for having me on your show to interview <laughs> you. Cheers, mate. I think you've done very well. I may allow you to come on again and not talk. How about this? Let's do that again. Cheers. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest on at Cricket Couch. I'm also there on the Twitters. Uh, if you want, you can find a bunch of his podcasts out there. Subash has really done incredible work in cricket podcasting. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on each individual platform you use. This really helps us, I think. I don't know, but let's go with that. 
Patreon funds this series. So if you like it, please pop over there and help support us. And thanks to the many who already do. It is a huge help. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston, well, he looks after your ears. And the theme tune is by the Red Cricket. Red Inca listener, don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps. Sports Social Podcast Network.